0: Welcome to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter by chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse by verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Third Nephi, chapter 19. Well, so much of what we have read in the book of Third Nephi so far and also in the book of helaman before that was measured in years what we've been reading since 3 nephi chapter 8 however has been measured in days it was in that chapter that the people came to Samuel's sign of the savior's crucifixion and a very long night commenced as we know there were violent storms uh, the earth was in a state of upheaval there were earthquakes there were whirlwinds there were tempests and when after this long night, it was time for the sun to rise. It did not. Instead, as verse 23 told us of 3 Nephi chapter 8, that this darkness did last for the space of three days, that there was no light seen. We know what happened next in this sequence, of course. In 3 Nephi chapters 9 and 10, the voice of the Savior penetrated this darkness. And midway through chapter 10, and verse 9, we find that the light finally returns, and it came to pass that thus did the three days pass away, meaning the three days of darkness. And it was in the morning, and the darkness dispersed from off the face of the land. And so it is this morning that we read of, in 3 Nephi chapter 10, verse 9, that belongs to the day that persists all the way through 3 Nephi chapter 18 and into the first three verses of this chapter, 3rd Nephi, chapter 19. So that is a ten-chapter sequence in 3rd Nephi that all portray the events of this one day. Then we will read in verse 4 of this chapter the phrase, It came to pass that on the morrow. So the bulk of 3rd Nephi, chapter 19, is the story of the next day. So what happens on this next day? Well, we know that the Savior has just ascended to the Father. We know that he stated that intention uh, towards the very beginning of 3 Nephi chapter 17, where in verse 4 he said, But now I go unto the Father, and also to show myself unto the lost tribes of Israel. We know, however, that that act was deferred because of the desire of the people for him to tarry with them. That act was deferred until the very end of 3 Nephi chapter 18. So in the final verses of that chapter, we read of the way in which Jesus touched his disciples giving them the power to give the Holy Ghost, as verse 37 says. Then in verse 39, we read of the thing that we anticipated happening much earlier, at the beginning of 3 Nephi chapter 17, where it says that while the people were overshadowed with the cloud, the Savior departed from them and ascended into heaven. So as chapter 19 opens, we have this almost cinematic scene of the people dispersing now that the Savior has ascended, As verse 1 will tell us, the multitude did disperse, and every man did take his wife and his children, and did return to his own home. We can remember that that is as per the Savior's instructions two chapters earlier, when he told them in verse 3, therefore go ye unto your homes, and ponder upon the things which I have said, and ask of the Father in my name that ye may understand, and prepare your minds for the morrow, and I come unto you again. So they, and we as readers, are holding on to this hope that now that the Savior has ascended, that he will come unto them again, now that we've come to the very end of this first day, and the second day, or the morrow, is upon us. So it is at this point in 3 Nephi 19 that we come to a realization that there were other people who were spared in the storms and in the tumult that were written of in 3 Nephi chapter 8. The 2,500 people assembled at the temple were not the only survivors. We gain this clarity because of what verse 2 will tell us in Third Nephi chapter 19. It says, and it was noised abroad among the people immediately before it was yet dark. So we're coming to the very end again of this first day. The Savior has ascended, uh, but it's not yet dark uh, that the multitude had seen Jesus and that he had ministered unto them and that he would also show himself on the morrow unto the multitude. So while these 2,500 people have returned to their homes, as we were told in verse 1, we can also see that many of these people did all they could during this night to gather any other survivors to the temple so that they could see the Savior when he came on the morrow. So that's some background for 3rd Nephi chapter 19. When the Savior does reappear to these people, which he most certainly does in this chapter, We will read of a fascinating and inspiring sequence of prayers. Although it's never stated explicitly in this chapter, we will get the distinct impression that there's something ritualistic or something like an ordinance that is happening here. The Savior will direct his disciples and the multitude to kneel and pray. Then he'll separate himself from them and he'll pray to the Father. And this sequence will happen several times in this chapter. So what we expect the Savior to do when he reappears among the people is to continue with the teachings that he left off with in 3rd Nephi chapter 16, and he ended with the chapter in Isaiah. But instead, in this chapter 3rd Nephi 19, he will attenuate out his teachings on prayer that he offered through example in 3rd Nephi chapter 17, and then that he offered in the form of a sermon, as after he finished the sacrament with the people in the previous chapter in 3rd Nephi chapter 18. So we won't do this now, but taking these three chapters together, 3rd Nephi chapters 17, 18, and 19, and asking what they teach about prayer is a wonderful exercise. I think they show us that prayer is real, that there is the reality when we pray of an actual Savior who advocates for us, and we pray in His name, and that the Father is equally real. That we pray individually unto the Father, to be protected against the buffetings of Satan, that we also assemble as families and pray in the same manner, and that we also pray as a church body, and that there is an order in which we do all of these things, and that when we do so, we may not be blessed with the physical presence of the Savior as it is uh, seen here in 3 Nephi chapter 19, but we most certainly are blessed with the presence of the Holy Ghost, which is also a major point of emphasis in this chapter. So when we yearn for our heavenly home, or when we wish that we could be so lucky as to have the Savior appear among us, at least we can remember the expression that says that prayer is the next best thing to being there. Well now to look at the structure of this chapter, 3rd Nephi chapter 19 has 36 verses, and in the first three verses we can see the multitude dispersing, and returning to their homes after the Savior has just ascended at the end of the previous chapter, we discover here that more people than this original multitude begin to gather through the night. So now as we come to verse 4 and extending through verse 9, this new, enlarged, or enriched, or enhanced multitude, so more than the 2,500 that we read of in 3 Nephi chapter 17, is separated into 12 bodies. So the morrow has come, this multitude has come together, and now, under the leadership of Nephi and the 12 disciples, this multitude will be separated into 12 bodies. And during this time, once they've been separated, they are taught by the 12, and they pray for the receipt of the Holy Ghost. So that's what happens in verses 4 through 9. Remember again that these 12 disciples were given the ability to give the Holy Ghost. Uh, in verse 37 of third Nephi 18 then in verses 10 through 12 the 12 beginning with Nephi are baptized and the multitude looks on at the water's edge so sacrament has been a key part of third Nephi chapter 18 and now baptism is a key part of third Nephi chapter 19. In other words, all of the Savior's transcendent and marvelous teachings that we've read of in that first day, extending from 3rd Nephi chapter 11 all the way until the beginning of 3rd Nephi chapter 19, are inextricably tied with these saving ordinances and covenants. That is the plain and precious context that is missing in the Savior's similar words in the New Testament. Then in verses 13 and 14, something glorious takes place. And remember, the Savior has not reappeared yet, but these wonderful things are still happening in his absence. So in verses 13 and 14, the Holy Ghost falls upon the twelve. So they've just been baptized. And then fire and angels come down out of heaven. And so we'll see language there that's very similar to what we read in 3 Nephi chapter 17. It'll say in verse 14 that these people were encircled about as it were by fire. So not by fire, but as it were by fire. And it came down from heaven, and the multitude did witness it and bear record, and angels did come down out of heaven and did minister unto them. Then the event that's anticipated by this multitude and by us as readers takes place in verse 15, where the Savior once again appears in the midst of his disciples. So this happens in the moment that these angels are ministering unto the disciples, and then the Savior comes and stands in their midst. Now what happens from here to the end of the chapter is this sequence of prayers. So, in verses 16 through 18, we'll see that the Savior directs the multitude to kneel and also directs his disciples to pray. And then, once they begin to do so, it says in verse 18, they began to pray. In fact, it says that they did pray into Jesus. We'll read some commentary about that. Once they uh, are in the act of doing this, then we find in verses 19 through 23 that the Savior separates himself from the multitude and praise to the Father. We'll read His language in these verses and see that it's somewhat similar to the great intercessory prayer in John chapter 17. And He'll talk about being one with the Father and with the Holy Ghost. And He'll also talk about His desire for the Holy Ghost to be given unto these people. Then, in verses 24 through 26, we'll see that Jesus returns to His disciples who are still in the act of praying, and During this time, we'll read that they are made white. So, of course, we'll come back to that in the reading. We'll see in verse 25 that the light of the Savior's countenance did shine upon them. Remember, they were already in the midst of fire and in the midst of angels. Once this occurs, the Savior once again separates himself from the multitude and prays. And we see this in verses 27 through 29. Then in verse 30, the Savior returns once again to his disciples who are still in the act of praying and they are still similarly white to the way in which they were described in verse 25. And then for the third time in verses 31 through 34, Jesus separates himself from the multitude and he prays unto the Father again. And this time we're not given the words that he prayed. Instead, we're told in verse 32 that Tongue cannot speak the words which he prayed; neither can be written by man the words which he prayed. We're simply told that his words were so great and so marvelous in verse 34 that they cannot be written, neither can they be uttered by man. Then, for the third time, Jesus returns to his disciples. He commends them for their faith, and this happens in verses 35 and 36, saying that so great faith have I never seen among all the Jews wherefore I could not show unto them so great miracles because of their unbelief. So that's where this chapter ends in verse 36. And this, as we can see, is yet one more chapter where heaven meets earth, where angels come in the midst of fire, and the Savior comes and prays with them in very sacred and unique ways. Well, let's move now to verse 1 for a reading of this great chapter. We have a sense of background and a sense of context, and we have a sense, of course, for how the events in this chapter are laid out. So verse 1, and of course we know that the Savior in the previous chapter, the very end, has just ascended to the Father. So verse 1, And now it came to pass that when Jesus had ascended into heaven, the multitude did disperse, and every man did take his wife and his children and did return to his own home. Again, that is as per the Savior's instructions at the beginning of 3rd Nephi chapter 17 when he told them to return to their homes. Now we can see as we come into verse 2 that this day that began in the 3rd Nephi chapter 10 when the morning light returned is still continuing. There is some daylight left. So verse 2, and it was noised abroad among the people immediately before it was yet dark that the multitude had seen Jesus and that he administered unto them, and that he would also show himself on the morrow unto the multitude. So this is also where we gain the understanding that the multitude, that 2,500 people that were numbered in Third Nephi chapter 17, was not the sum total of the people who had survived the experience of Third Nephi chapter 8. There were other people still that had the potential of being there on the morrow when the Savior returned. And so verse 3 tells us, yea, And even all the night it was noised abroad concerning Jesus. And insomuch did they send forth unto the people that there were many, yea, an exceedingly great number, did labor exceedingly all that night, that they might be on the morrow in the place where Jesus should show himself unto the multitude. We've already talked then about how this was such a full day. And undoubtedly, the night before that was a very sleepless night. Yet when we come to the end of this full day, and night finally falls... Many of these people still do not return to their homes and go to bed, it seems. But instead, they can be found gathering. These people are eyewitnesses to unspeakable things that they've seen over the past day. And they want to broaden the size of this multitude and make it possible for as many people as are willing to come to this place and to see the Savior when he appears on the morrow. So that's what happens in the night preceding the morrow. Some are at home in their beds. We have to wonder if even they are asleep, because they have a great deal to ponder upon, as per the Savior's instructions. And some are out gathering. So now verse 4, And it came to pass that on the morrow, so now the morrow has come, this is the day when the Savior will return, when the multitude was gathered together, behold, Nephi and his brother, whom he had raised from the dead, whose name was Timothy, that, by the way, has reference to an incident that we read of in 3 Nephi chapter 7, verse 19, which said, in the name of Jesus, did he cast out devils and unclean spirits? We're talking here about Nephi, and this is a time in 3 Nephi chapter 7 when everything had fallen apart. But then towards the end of the chapter, we read of the power and efficacy of Nephi's ministry. So we find that he's cast out devils and unclean spirit, and even his brother did he raise from the dead after he had been stoned and suffered death by the people. So that, as we're learning here in verse 4, was Timothy, the brother of Nephi, and he had been stoned and was subsequently raised from the dead. Now continuing in verse 4, and also his son, whose name was Jonas, and also Methoni, and Methonaiha, his brother, and Cuman, and Cumanonhi, and Jeremiah, and Shemnon, and Jonas, and Zedekiah, and Isaiah. It's interesting for us that those last few names are the names, of course, of brass plates, prophets. Now these were the names of the disciples whom Jesus had chosen. And if we were to count those, we'd see that there are 12 names. And it came to pass that they went forth and stood in the midst of the multitude. So the sun has risen, the multitude is gathered. It's much larger than the original 2,500. And now these 12 will minister to this multitude. And there will be specific order to this. Here's how they'll do it. Verse 5 and behold, the multitude was so great that they did cause that they should be separated into twelve bodies. Ogden and Skinner have written, at the end of the first day's instructions, Jesus ascended into heaven, and families dispersed to their own homes to fulfill the Savior's instruction to ponder the meaning of events just witnessed. Throughout the night, notice was sent forth, and people from all over toiled to be in place the next day. Originally, only 2,500 of the most righteous were in attendance at the temple site, where Jesus would show himself again. Can we imagine that there would have been any who would not have expended every effort to be there? Why do some today not extend even modest effort to be in appointed places designated by the same Savior through his authorized servants? The next day, the multitude was so expansive that they had to be separated into twelve bodies. The names of Jesus' twelve disciples, or apostles, uh, is the term that Moroni will later use in Moroni chapter 2, so it is appropriate, Ogden and Skinner are saying here, to refer to these twelve disciples as apostles. But they say the names of these twelve disciples, or apostles, are given. As with the original quorum of the twelve apostles in the land of Israel, there are sets of brothers and other relatives. Verse 6, now that this multitude has been separated into twelve bodies. And the twelve did teach the multitude, and behold, they did cause that the multitude should kneel down upon the face of the earth, and should pray unto the Father in the name of Jesus. So we can see here that even before the Savior appears to this multitude again, the prayers have begun. It's interesting in verse 8 that it says that these apostles ministered those same words which Jesus had spoken. We, we wonder exactly what that means. Hugh Nibley has offered this commentary, the disciples prayed and arose and ministered to the people. What would they do? They gave the speech here. Notice the next verse proves what we mean by ministering. And when they had ministered those same words which Jesus had spoken, they ministered the words, see. They came and told them what the teaching was. They told the people what the Lord had told them before, so they ministered the words. That's what you do when you minister. In other words, you come and teach. And I think we could add to Nibley's comments by saying that when we minister, we do so using the words of Christ. Uh, We're always on solid ground when we do that, because that's the language of angels as well. And Nephi taught that very carefully in 2 Nephi chapter 32, that angels speak the words of Christ, and of course they speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. So we can do the exact same thing when we minister. Then we see this verse in verse 9, and the order here is very instructive. Uh, Because these people have gathered together in hopes that the Savior will come again to them, that this is the morrow that he was talking about in 3rd Nephi chapter 17 when he said he'd come unto them on the morrow. However, here is what happens in verse 9, and they did pray for that which they most desired, and they desired that the Holy Ghost should be given unto them. This shows us, of course, what a prized gift the gift of the Holy Ghost truly is. Ogden and Skinner have written, The first thing the Twelve taught the people was to kneel down and pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. And the foremost thing the people prayed for, that which they most desired, was to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because Jesus would soon leave them, they wanted the gift of constant companionship of one of the gods while in this frail existence far from their heavenly home. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has written in his book Christ and the New Covenant, It is most significant that it was this for which the Nephite 12 prayed above all else. As Christ had not yet appeared to them for this second day, and because the Father and Son could not permanently be with them or us in a celestial world, the next best companionship came from that member of the Godhead who can be with mortals permanently, the Holy Ghost, who is the spiritual extension and telestial representative of the Father and the Son. In our own time, Elder Holland continues, The prophet Joseph Smith was asked wherein the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints differed from other religions of the day. He replied that the distinction lay in the gift of the Holy Ghost, and that all other considerations were contained in that gift. In light of these experiences, ancient or modern, old world or new, perhaps all disciples of Christ, all members of His true Church, should pray for the influence and guidance of the Holy Ghost as that heavenly gift which they most desire. Now, the Book of Mormon Institute manual says the following about this episode in 3 Nephi chapter 19 verse 9. The twelve disciples whom Jesus had chosen prayed that the Holy Ghost should be given unto them. Elder Bruce R. McConkie explained the meaning behind this request. Quote, There is a difference between the gift of the Holy Ghost and the enjoyment of the gift. All saints after baptism receive the gift or right to the sanctifying power of the Spirit. Only those who are worthy and who keep the commandments actually enjoy the promised reward. In practice, members of the Church enjoy the companionship of the Spirit from time to time as they manage, by obedience, to get in tune with the infinite. The actual enjoyment of the gift of the Holy Ghost is a supernal gift that a man can receive in mortality. The fact of its receipt is a witness that the saints so blessed are reconciled to God and are doing the things that will assure them of eternal life in the realms ahead. President Heber J. Grant spoke of asking God twice a day for the guidance of the Holy Spirit, He said, I have little or no fear for the boy or the girl, the young man or the young woman who honestly and conscientiously supplicate God twice a day for the guidance of His Spirit. I am sure that when temptation comes, they will have the strength to overcome it by the inspiration that shall be given to them. Supplicating the Lord for the guidance of His Spirit places around us a safeguard, and if we earnestly and honestly seek the guidance of the Spirit of the Lord, I can assure you that we will receive it. President Marion G. Romney once said, If you want to obtain and keep the guidance of the Spirit, you can do so by following this simple four-point program. One, pray. Pray diligently. Second, study and learn the gospel. Third, live righteously and repent of your sins. Fourth, give service in the church. I think we can see from this that um, it's somewhat like uh, obtaining a remission of one's sins, but then retaining that remission of our sins. And of course, the, uh, the, the process of ongoing repentance and the ordinance of the sacrament is so key to that. But we can see that when it comes to the gift of the Holy Ghost, there is the receipt of that gift, but then there is maintaining uh, companionship with the Holy Ghost, which is contingent upon us. It seems to be that this can be a constant companion for us if we're worthy of it. Elder Bednar uh, gave some really valuable teaching on this subject about a year ago. When training Sunday school teachers in the church. I don't have a specific reference for it. It's a video that can be found on um, the church website. Someone asks him about this subject, and he says the thing that you really ought to notice is when the presence or companionship of the Holy Ghost is no longer with you. In other words, what actions uh, precipitate that unfortunate event? His point in so saying uh, was not only that, but also that Our default setting as members of the church who have been confirmed and have been given the gift of the Holy Ghost should be that his companionship is constantly with us. Now we can see what happens next as we return to the text and these people have expressed their desire to have the Holy Ghost with them. We can see that the ordinance of baptism is fundamental to this. In verse 10 it says, And when they had thus prayed, and again they had prayed for the Holy Ghost, they went down unto the water's edge and the multitude followed them. So this is an interesting way of expressing what baptism is and what the covenant of baptism is. We often refer to it as spiritual rebirth and a way of formally becoming members of the church. Here we can see, and borrowing words from Elder Holland, we can see that our greatest need in this celestial sphere is to have the companionship of the Holy Ghost with us. And the way to attain unto this is first to be baptized. That's another way of expressing what baptism does for us. That also, of course, ties it to the ordinance of the sacrament— since the sacrament is when we formally remember the Savior's broken body and His blood that was shed for us, and then we pledge to always remember Him. And then, as a result, we can have His Spirit to be with us. So here the disciples are going to the water's edge, and the multitude, we can see, uh, they don't seem to be participating directly into this in this baptism at this point, but they are participating in the sense that the multitude followed them. Verse 11, And it came to pass that Nephi went down into the water and was baptized. And he came up out of the water uh, and began to baptize. So we can see that that's the the type of immersion that the Savior was describing in 3 Nephi chapter 11. And he baptized all those whom Jesus had chosen. So presumably that is the 12 that were just named. Now in verse 13, we can see that the thing that they desired in verse 9 comes to them and comes to them in great measure. And it came to pass, when they were all baptized and had come up out of the water, the Holy Ghost did fall upon them, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. We can also guess here that this is not Nephi's first experience in being baptized. The Institute Manual speaks of this. It says President Joseph Fielding Smith explained why Jesus commanded the Nephites to be baptized again. When Christ appeared to the Nephites on this continent, he commanded them to be baptized, although they had been baptized previously for the remission of their sins. The Savior commanded Nephi and the people to be baptized again because he had organized anew the church under the gospel. Before that, it had been organized under the law. So he's differentiating there between the law of Moses and, and the new law. For the same reason, Joseph Smith and those who had been baptized prior to April 6, 1830, were again baptized on the day of the organization of the church. So again, as we return to the text, we can see in verse 13 that the Holy Ghost did fall upon them. That's the verbiage that's used, and that they were filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Remember that the word filled was used in the previous chapter when they drank the wine in the sacramental ordinance. Here's what happens next in verse 14. And behold, they were encircled about as if it were by fire. And it came down from heaven, and the multitude did witness it and did bear record. And angels did come down out of heaven and administer unto them. So what a phenomenon and um, must have been somewhat similar to the day of Pentecost. The multitude may not have visibly witnessed the receipt of the Holy Ghost that is recorded in verse 13, but they certainly uh, witnessed what happened next because we can see that they saw and did bear record that angels did come out of heaven and administer unto these disciples. So this, of course, is the baptism of fire, so we can think about the relationship of these two baptisms. Ogden and Skinner say two baptisms followed their fervent praying, the baptism of water to symbolically wash away their sins, burying the old man of sin and rising to newness of life in the likeness of the resurrection, and the baptism of fire to symbolically burn away their sins to provide a worthy vessel for the Spirit of the Lord to reside in. The two baptisms feature two great cleansing agents, water and fire, to purify and sanctify souls to become holy as God is holy. The symbol of the Holy Ghost is fire. The people were encircled about as if it were by fire. Again, not our usual fire, but the radiance, brilliance, light, or glory that accompanied angelic ministrants from heaven. Joseph Fielding McConkie has said, with uh, reference to the relationship between the Holy Ghost and fire, The symbolism of receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost is that of lighting a perpetual flame within the soul, one which provides light and warmth while constantly purging that which is unclean from it. That I think is an absolutely beautiful and thought-provoking explanation of the relationship between the Holy Ghost and fire. So something truly marvelous is happening here for these people, and again, very specifically, it is the baptism of water and then the baptism of fire. That is being seen here. And now, here's what happens in verse 15 the anticipated event for which all the people were gathered. It is now the morrow, and we hope that the Savior will return. And indeed, he does here in verse 15. And it came to pass that while the angels were ministering unto the disciples, behold, Jesus came and stood in the midst and ministered unto them. So now, the 12 disciples or apostles and the original 2,500 people that were assembled and bountiful at the temple. Are in the midst of the Savior once again, and now they have expanded their numbers, and there are more people that are gathered, and now this, for the first time for them, is when they see the Savior appearing. We talked about this with reference to the children that gathered around the Savior in 3 Nephi 17 already, but what a singular and unique thing uh, for these people to be with the resurrected Savior in this manner. Very, very few people in the history of the earth have had this privilege. Bruce R. McConkie spoke of this in The Mortal Messiah by saying, In our view, these marvelous happenings, when the Holy Ghost fell mightily upon the people, when the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit of God cleansed their souls, when mortal men were quickened by the Spirit until their countenances shone, and we'll read of that in a few moments here in this chapter, as did that of Moses after he was with the Lord for forty days in the Holy Mount, when Jesus spoke words that could not be written and could only be understood by the power of the Spirit, these marvelous events were the high point of Jesus' ministry among his other sheep. Seldom, if ever, has there been such a scene on planet earth. Perhaps in the Zion of Enoch, when the Lord came and dwelt with his people. Perhaps at Adam on Diamond in the assembly of high priests, when the Lord appeared and ministered comfort unto Adam, and the Ancient of Days predicted whatsoever should befall his posterity unto the latest generation. Perhaps on the Mount of Transfiguration, when only Peter, James, and John were present. Perhaps there have been other like outpourings of God's goodness and grace, of which we have no knowledge, but nowhere do our scriptures preserve in such detail such wondrous events as are here recorded. Truly they are a sample and an illustration of what shall be in that great millennial day when he whose we are reigns personally among those who remain on earth after the wicked and ungodly have been burned as stubble. Thomas R. Valletta provides us with this wonderful insight as we consider the sequence of what has happened so far now that we've come to verse 15. He says, Notice the process on this second day. The multitude gathers together in verse 4. They are taught by the Lord's chosen servants and unite in prayer for their greatest desire, which is to receive the Holy Ghost in verses 6 through 9. They are baptized with water and then are filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire in verse 13. Angels minister unto them, and then Jesus appears, and also ministers unto them, in verses 10-15. through Though we may not expect a personal visit from the Savior, are there parts in this pattern that might allow you to have the Holy Ghost and the Savior as a more significant influence in your life? Now we'll see what the Savior does, now that He has appeared, and He is standing in the midst of the people. The presence of the Holy Ghost was first invited and invoked for these people through the process of baptism, uh, both by water and by fire. Then the Savior appeared among these people, and now the presence of the Father will be part of this process as well. So this will happen in the following way. Verse 16, And it came to pass that he spoke unto the multitude, and commanded them that they should kneel down again upon the earth, and also that his disciples should kneel down upon the earth. And it came to pass that when they had all knelt down upon the earth, he commanded his disciples that they should pray. This kneeling is exactly the thing that these people would do in the presence of the Savior. They they fell to their knees uh, when he first appeared to them in 3 Nephi chapter 11. This is also, of course, what they would do in the presence of the Father. And so since they are now praying before the Father, they should kneel. So that gives us insight into why we kneel before him as we pray. Verse 18, and behold, they began to pray. And they did pray unto Jesus, calling him their Lord and their God. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because the Father is involved when the Savior himself prays to him in verse 19. So that is soon to come. Let me first read some commentary about this phenomenon where the people pray directly to Jesus. That is something that we're not directed to do today. The Institute Manual says there is no place in Scripture where we are taught to pray to Jesus. Jesus. In this unique instance, however, the disciples offered prayers to the Son instead of the Father. Elder Bruce R. McConkie suggested a reason that this may have occurred. He said there was a special reason why this was done in this instance and on a one-time basis. Jesus had already taught them to pray in his name to the Father, which they first did. Jesus was present before them as the symbol of the Father. Seeing him, it was as though they saw the Father— Praying to him, it was as though they prayed to the Father. It was a special and unique situation. It should also be noted that the Savior specifically stated that the people were praying to him on this occasion because, as he said, I am with them, in Third Nephi 19, verse 22. Furthermore, on this occasion, they did not multiply words, for it was given unto them what they should pray. We'll read that in just a few moments. Ogden and Skinner also addressed this issue by saying the question often arises, why should the disciples pray to Jesus when he had so recently instructed them to pray to the Father in his name? The Savior himself answered that question. They pray unto me because I am with them. One of the Godhead, the Holy One of Israel, was there present in person with them. When he departed, they would continue to pray as instructed to the Father in his name, meaning in the name of the Savior. Well, now that the people are praying to the Savior in this manner, with him in their presence, he then separates himself from the multitude and prays to the Father. So verse 19, And it came to pass that Jesus departed out of the midst of them, and went a little way off from them, and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, So this is the first of three times that this will happen, and how far the Savior went away uh, is, is hard to say for sure, but it just says a little way off from the multitude. And in this first of three instances, the exact words that the Savior said to the Father are recorded. So here they are in verse 20. Father, I thank thee that thou hast given the Holy Ghost unto these whom I have chosen. And it is because of their belief in me that I have chosen them out of the world. So again, this great prize of the gift of the Holy Ghost is similarly prized by the Savior himself. It was desired uh, in verse 9 by by the disciples and by the people, and then the Savior immediately acknowledges the receipt of the Holy Ghost that has taken place. Uh, That is not to be eclipsed in significance by the appearance of the Savior. Uh, That too, for these people, is a critical part, uh, this receipt of the Holy Ghost and the way that it has occurred in this chapter. It's also really significant to see that the Savior begins his prayer to the Father by thanking him, something that we regularly do when we pray, The Institute Manual says the scriptures give many examples of the Savior expressing thanks to his Father. Then there are references in Mark, John, and 1 Corinthians that are given. Upon returning to visit the Nephites a second time, Jesus began his first and second prayers recorded in scripture by thanking his Father. Elder Robert D. Hales of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles emphasized this principle. He said prayer is an essential part of conveying appreciation to our Heavenly Father, He awaits our expression of gratefulness each morning and night in sincere, simple prayer from our hearts for our many blessings, gifts, and talents. Through expression of prayerful gratitude and thanksgiving, we show our dependence upon a higher source of wisdom and knowledge, God the Father and His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ogden and Skinner have written, Jesus provided another extraordinary example for us. While in the middle of His work, He departed out of the midst of the people went a little way off from them and bowed himself to the earth, and thanked his heavenly Father for a particular blessing. Jesus did the same during his mortal ministry in the Holy Land. The four Gospels record several occasions when he stepped aside away from the crowds and talked personally with his Father. Everything Jesus did and said was a lesson, a message to all mortals. By way of illustration, before the miracle of raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, Jesus paused to talk with his Father to give him thanks. We can see that in John chapter 11, verses 41-42. through 42. He intentionally did that to remind those listening to him that he was in constant touch with the one who sent him here, as we also should be in constant touch with the same one who sent us here. What Jesus was saying and doing was teaching and strengthening his faithful disciples so that they would always give credit, praise, and honor to the Father. Now the Savior's prayer continues in verses 21-23. through 23, Father, I pray thee that thou wilt give the Holy Ghost unto all them that shall believe in their words. Father, thou hast given them the Holy Ghost because they believe in me, and thou seest that they believe in me because thou hearest them, and they pray unto me, and they pray unto me because I am with them. So there again is the very simple explanation of why they prayed directly to him. And now, Father, I pray unto thee for them, and also for all those who shall believe on their words, that they may believe in me, that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one. Again, similar to the Savior's intercessory prayer in John chapter 17. This principle of unity is also expressed in Doctrine and Covenants section 38 verse 27 that says, I say unto you, Be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. So that is how we become his, is to be unified. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has written, From the Savior's Language, we see clearly it is the Holy Ghost that provides such unity, a doctrinal point not so clearly communicated in the New Testament account. Furthermore, it is significant that one of the ultimate evidences God has of our belief in deity is that we are seen and heard praying. Christ noted this evidence on behalf of the Nephites. To the Father he said, Thou seest that they believe in me because thou hearest them. It is the key to the miraculous manifestations of heaven, and the personal companionship of the holy comforters. And that comes from Elder Holland's book, Christ in the New Covenant. Elder D. Todd Christofferson wrote this in an October 2002 conference report. Jesus achieved perfect unity with the Father by submitting himself, both flesh and spirit, to the will of the Father. The Savior's ministry was always clearly focused because there was no debilitating or distracting double-mindedness in him. Referring to his Father, Jesus said, I do always those things that please him. That's John chapter 8, verse 29. Surely, Elder Christopherson continues, we will not be one with God and Christ until we make their will and interest our greatest desire. Such submissiveness is not reached in a day, but through the Holy Spirit the Lord will tutor us if we are willing until in process of time it may be accurately said that he is in us as the Father is in him. At times I tremble to consider what may be required, but I know that it is only in this perfect union that a fullness of joy can be found. Now in verse 24, we find the Savior returning to his disciples as they continue to pray. And it came to pass that when Jesus had thus prayed unto the Father, he came unto his disciples, and behold, they did still continue without ceasing to pray unto him, and they did not multiply words, for it was given unto them what they should pray, and they were filled with desire." That's a beautiful and instructive verse. Ogden and Skinner have said, This is one of our best descriptions of mighty prayer. Without ceasing, determined to keep praying until heaven responded. As Joseph Smith taught, Come to God and weary Him until He blesses you. Not multiplying many words, being inspired what to pray, and being filled with desire. Indeed, the purest prayers are those in which the Spirit reveals to the petitioner the actual words that should be used. Elder of Maxwell has taught, we must have the Spirit with us so that the Holy Ghost can prompt us to pray for that which is right. Nephi advised us that the Spirit teacheth the man to pray. That's out of 2 Nephi chapter 32, verse 8. There is, therefore, a definite connection between our righteousness and our capacity to draw upon the Spirit so that we will ask for what we should ask for. The Lord told Joseph Smith in 1831, and if ye are purified and cleansed from all sin, you shall ask whatsoever you will in the name of Jesus, and it shall be done. But know this, it shall be given you what you shall ask. One might ask, why is it necessary that the Holy Ghost prompt us even in our prayers? One reason is that only with the help of the Holy Ghost can we be lifted outside the narrow little theater of our own experience, outside our selfish concerns and outside the confines of our tiny conceptual cells. It was Jacob who reminded us, and in such beautiful language, that the Spirit which teacheth us to pray also speaketh of things as they really are, and of things as they really will be. The Spirit searcheth the deep things of God, as 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 says, and superficial prayer will not produce such probings. God sees things as they really are and as they will become. We don't. In order to tap that precious perspective during our prayers, We must rely upon the promptings of the Holy Ghost. With access to that kind of knowledge, we would then pray for what we and others should have, really have. With the Spirit prompting us, we will not ask amiss. With access to the Spirit, our circles of concern will expand. The mighty prayer of Enos began with understandable self-concern, moved outward to family, then to his enemies, and then outward to future generations. Here, finally, is some commentary on this beautiful verse from Elder Jean Cook. He said, When the Nephite disciples were praying in the presence of Jesus, they set a good example for us all. The record says they did not multiply many words. This is consistent with the commandment the Lord gave to the Jews during his mortal ministry. He said, When ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. When we pray publicly, let us be careful to never be swept away in the desire for the honors of men, which might cause us to pray without real intent or to unnecessarily extend the length of our prayers. The same caution applies to those who pray for a mortal audience rather than simply to be heard by the Lord. We must always be careful to avoid flowery prayers uh, or prayers to impress. Surely the Lord is not pleased with such an approach Nor will he answer the prayers of one who is not focused on the Lord or who prays without real intent. Now, returning to the text in verse 25, remember the Savior has come back to his disciples and they are praying in this manner. They're not multiplying many words, which, by the way, is a very interesting way of, as Elder Cook pointed out, of of demonstrating the opposite of what the Savior spoke of in his Sermon on the Mount and at the temple to not pray as the hypocrites with flowery words. And so now we'll see what happens next. Verse 25, And it came to pass that Jesus blessed them as they did pray unto him, and his countenance did smile upon them. That, I think, is an interesting piece of insight. His countenance did smile upon them. It doesn't say that he smiled or that his face smiled upon them, but his countenance smiled upon them. And the light of his countenance did shine upon them. And behold, they were as white as the countenance and also the garments of Jesus. And behold, the whiteness thereof did exceed all the whiteness. Even there could be nothing upon earth so white as the whiteness thereof. So the word whiteness is being used here um, in a way that's not limited to the color spectrum, we might say. And we've we've talked about this earlier. I think it was in 3 Nephi chapter 2 where we talked about uh, white and black and how it's not appropriate simply to think of that as a, an issue of melanin or pigmentation. Something else is happening here. Uh, when the word white is being used. It, It has to do with glory and light. It's something we have a hard time conceiving of because it says there's nothing upon earth so white as the whiteness thereof. Ogden and Skinner wrote, What a joyful moment. Certainly the Savior of the world is a happy person. He knows and lives a fullness of joy. So finally, for the first and only time in all of Scripture, we read that Jesus did smile upon them. And he did smile upon them again. And they were radiant with his glory, enveloping them with a whiteness and brilliance exceeding anything earthly. For surely they had transcended the bounds of earth, penetrated the veil, and basked in heavenly light. Verse 26, And Jesus said unto them, Pray on. Nevertheless, they did not cease to pray. One might wonder why the word therefore isn't used. Therefore they did not cease to pray. In any event, They continue to pray, and now we'll find that the Savior separates himself yet again for the second time from the multitude and prays to the Father. And once again, the words of this prayer are given. So verse 27, And he turned from them again, and went a little way off, and bowed himself to the earth, and he prayed again unto the Father, saying, Father, I thank thee that thou hast purified those whom I have chosen because of their faith. And I pray for them, and also for them who shall believe on their words." that they may be purified in me through faith on their words, even as they are purified in me. So he is empowering others to carry his power to purify others in him. Verse 29, Father, I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me out of the world, because of their faith, that they may be purified in me, that I may be in them as thou, Father, art in me, that we may be one, that I may be glorified in them think for a moment about the power in praying for others and uh, what comfort it can bring us to discover that someone else is praying for us in our time of need. Here we see the Savior himself praying for us, acting as an advocate in this manner. Ogden and Skinner have written, Jesus prayed for the leaders and for all those who believe in him through their teaching, that they might be one, that they might be united the same salient doctrine he taught his disciples in the old world as recorded in his great intercessory prayer. The concept of oneness is both important and urgent in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the vital message inherent in the English word atonement, or at one meant, the idea of becoming one. So that's a wonderful insight there, helping us to see how this discussion of oneness is very much related to his atoning act and his atoning role. Note how the Lord uses various parts of the Father's crowning creation, the physical body for each of His children, to illustrate the desirability of oneness. The children of God lived with one eye, having their hearts knit together in unity. That's out of Mosiah 18, verse 21. Them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. That's in Acts, chapter 4, verse 32. His people, Zion, were of one heart and one mind. That's in Moses, chapter 7, verse 18. We, being many, are one body in Christ, Romans chapter 12, verse 5. Stand fast in one spirit with one mind, says Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. One eye, one mind, one heart, one body, one spirit, and one soul. Every member of the body is needed. All members must unite together in order for the body of Christ to function perfectly. To establish Zion, then, we must become of one heart and one mind. God does not seem to be celebrating diversity but unity. That may not be too popular a notion in the world, but the Godhead is encouraging us to become like they are, to feel and to think and to act as they do. I and my Father are one, Jesus proclaimed. He said that in John chapter 10 verse 30 and also in Doctrine and Covenants section 50 verse 43. So much alike are they that if we know one, we know the others. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one God. Of us, the Savior said, they may become the sons of God, even one in me, as I am in the Father, as the Father is one in me, that we may be one. Doctrine and Covenants section 35 verse 2. Is all this three are one merely theological double talk, or is there something profoundly significant and sacred in this doctrine? Surely the three gods are teaching us mortals the fundamental and indispensable principle that will lead us to become as they are. In that great intercessory prayer, again that's in John chapter 17, our advocate with the Father pleaded with him, Holy Father, keep those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are, that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. There is the foundational reason for us to be united as one, to become perfect. I say unto you, be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine, says Doctrine and Covenants section 38 verse 27. In all the above passages we see the basic meaning of that otherwise abstract word atonement. The great sacrificial offering of the Lamb is meant to help us become as one, one with him and the Father and one with each other. So that brings us to the end of the Savior's second prayer, after he has separated himself from the multitude and prayed to the Father. And so now for the second time, he will return to his disciples who are still continuing to pray, and as we will discover here in verse 30, are still white in this same manner. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he came again unto his disciples. And behold, they did pray steadfastly without ceasing unto him, and he did smile upon them again. And behold, they were white even as Jesus.' Catherine Thomas has written the following about this whiteness. The Holy Ghost performs two of his functions in these passages. He fills those praying with catalytic desire, and he burns out impurities and cleanses them. In this process, the disciples were transfigured, being empowered to endure the presence of heavenly elements and beings without being wholly consumed. Much to think about there. McConkie, Millett, and Top have written, There are two ways in which the Lord's countenance did shine upon them, one literal and the other symbolic. From the context of this verse, we can see that there was a literal transfiguration of the disciples in that they were filled with light and their countenances shone with light like that of the Savior. They were so filled with the Spirit that they shone with a literal light and glory. And there we can think of Exodus chapter 34, Moses' experience, and Daniel chapter 3, also Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, and then what happened very recently in Helaman chapter 5. In a more symbolic way, we experience the countenance of the Lord shining upon us, like the Nephites, when we feel of the Savior's perfect love for us, His compassion and His approbation. Though we may not literally in this life see the smiling face of God, we can nonetheless feel the smile and joy of the Lord as we please Him through service and obedience. Well, now the Savior has checked in on the people, as it were, this second time. They have not ceased praying, and their countenance are still um, radiating in this manner. They're transfigured, and the Savior uh, smiles upon them again. So now for the third time, he separates himself from the multitude, prays unto the Father. This time, though, the words are not recorded, and we'll be told why in this passage in verses 31-34. through And it came to pass that he went again a little way off and prayed unto the Father. And tongue cannot speak the words which he prayed, neither can be written by man the words which he prayed. And the multitude did hear and do bear record, and their hearts were open, and they did understand in their hearts the words which he prayed. Nevertheless, so great and marvelous were the words which he prayed that they cannot be written, neither can they be uttered by man. They can't be written, they can't be uttered, It doesn't seem in this instance that it's because specifically they're forbidden. We'll talk about that idea in later chapters. It seems simply that what happened here was so transcendent that it just can't be conveyed by the tongue and can't be conveyed by the pen. The heart is used here as the understanding organ, not the brain, when we see in verse 32 that their hearts were open and they did understand in their hearts the words which the Savior prayed. That too is very instructive. So three times when the Savior separates himself from the multitude and prays. The first two times his language is very similar to the intercessory prayer in John chapter 17. And then this third time, as though those two previous events, to use Catherine Thomas' words, were catalytic, we have this prayer, which just cannot even be conveyed. So now that this glorious thing has taken place, the Savior returns to his disciples for the third time. And he speaks to them, and here's what he says in verse 35 And it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of praying, he came again to the disciples, and said unto them, So great faith have I never seen among all the Jews, wherefore I could not show unto them so great miracles because of their unbelief. So this is insight for us. Nothing like this happened to the Jews. Now, the Institute Manual says, Great miracles accompanied the Savior's visit to the saints in Book of Mormon times. Miracles of healings, angels, shining countenances, prayers too sacred to be written, and many other marvelous manifestations. Jesus declared to his disciples, So great faith have I never seen among all the Jews, wherefore I could not show unto them so great miracles because of their unbelief. Do miracles occur today, or has the day of miracles ceased? Elder Dallin H. Oaks taught that miracles still occur, however, we don't often hear of them because of their sacredness. He said, why don't our talks in general conference and local meetings say more about the miracles we have seen? Most of the miracles we experience are not to be shared. Consistent with the teachings of the scriptures, we hold them sacred and share them only when the Spirit prompts us to do so. Modern Revelation directs that they shall not boast themselves of these things, neither speak them before the world, for these things are given unto you for your profit and for salvation. That's out of Doctrine and Covenants section 84 verse 73. Another Revelation declares, Remember that which cometh from above is sacred, and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit. Doctrine and Covenants section 63 verse 64. Latter-day Saints generally follow these directions. In bearing testimonies and in our public addresses, we rarely mention our most miraculous experiences, and we rarely rely on signs that the gospel is true. We usually just affirm our testimony of the truthfulness of the restored gospel and give a few details on how we obtained it. Why is this? Signs follow those that believe. Seeking a miracle to convert someone is improper sign-seeking. By the same token, it is usually inappropriate to recite miraculous circumstances to a general audience that includes people with very different levels of spiritual maturity. To a general audience, miracles will be faith-reinforcing for some, but an inappropriate sign for others. Well That's a very important principle being taught by Elder Oaks and also a fascinating acknowledgement of the fact that he and undoubtedly his fellow apostles are privy to great miracles. And truthfully, for that matter, we are too. And we can see, for one thing, that the spread of this church upon the earth and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and of course the gift of the Holy Ghost itself, is already a great miracle. President Russell M. Nelson is fond of referring to a marvelous work and a wonder as a miraculous miracle. We were lucky enough to have him attend our sacrament meeting a couple years ago here in Midway, Utah. And he spoke on that subject at that time, uh, talking especially about Second Nephi chapter 27. And so it is that we are in the midst of a miraculous miracle right now. Well, now coming into verse 36, the final verse in this incredible chapter, "'Verily I say unto you, there are none of them,' meaning the Jews of the old world, "'that have seen so great things as ye have seen, and "'neither have they heard so great things as ye have heard.'" Why is the Savior drawing this comparison then, It seems to be for us as readers, um, more than for the people that are present on that occasion. Ogden and Skinner have written, What a remarkable scene! We would love to have been there. Perhaps we were, watching afar off. How would it be to see the Savior of the world kneeling and hear Him talking so personally with His Father? Words that cannot even be spoken or written, they were so powerful and marvelous. Sadly, he lamented that his mortal friends and disciples on the other side of the world never did attain to so great faith and deep spirituality as to open the heavens and see and hear such miraculous and unspeakable things. Remember, these people had demonstrated their faith in unique and incredible ways. Uh, Some 33 years earlier, some of these disciples who were present on this occasion, some perhaps were too young, but many probably were would have been there uh, before the first of Samuel's signs appeared, that very long day, uh, that light night. Uh, because immediately prior to that, uh, they were under threat of death. These people had demonstrated their faith uh, in that particular way, and in many ways, uh, as we see the devolution of society throughout uh, the book of Third Nephi, from Third Nephi 1 up through Third Nephi chapter 7. So, they, they were uh, very faithful people, and then, of course, they had survived everything that had taken place in 3rd Nephi, chapter 8. Sidney B. Sperry has written this in his Book of Mormon Compendium, and this is a, a really nice kind of capstone statement as we come to the end of this chapter. He said, even more impressive in chapter 19 is its description of an ineffable outpouring of prayer when Jesus again stood in the midst of the people. In all scripture, there can be found no description of a prayer service as powerful and marvelous as this. Only those with a high degree of spirituality can begin to comprehend and appreciate it. On account of its drama, loveliness, and high spirituality, I rank this, chapter 19, as one of the greatest in the Book of Mormon. Well, as we've come to the end of this chapter, we can so regard it as well. We will soon see that this day continues into 3rd Nephi chapter 20, and the Savior will pick back up with the teachings that he offered in 3rd Nephi chapters 15 and 16 in particular. So we have that to look forward to. For now, this brings us to the end of 3rd Nephi chapter 19. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. If this podcast has benefited you, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. By this point in October of 2020, this podcast has reached almost 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media, and to write a review on iTunes, You will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual, Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse by verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, and the revised edition of Thomas Arvaletta's Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them I of course am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text. A text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author. I offer my personal witness that his attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know him better. So, have a wonderful day, Keep in touch, and thank you for listening.